Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com/wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombus donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombus.com/acast code acast. Welcome to the Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic, and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Hi, Chris. Good to talk again. Welcome back for another edition of the Other Hand. A lot of focus on the UK today.、Um, you have been looking at the mortgage bomb in the that's going to hit the United Kingdom over the next couple of years. In other words, as fixed rate mortgages mature and people find themselves facing a significant increase in the interest rate bill. Based on what the Bank of England has done over the last eighteen months in terms of tightening interest rates, you want to look at the comments made by the owners of Vauxhall Peugeot in relation to the next wave of Brexit, and I think this relates back to the border target operating model that is going to represent the next stage of Brexit from a UK perspective. In other words. These are the trading arrangements the UK government will be putting in place、um, for trade in and out of the United Kingdom. So the owners, I say, of Vauxhall Peugeot have had some pretty stark stuff to say say about that, and it just reflects the ongoing mess that is Brexit. The third topic is a, a really interesting one. This week in the United Kingdom, we've seen the national. Conservatism conference take place. Are seeing a lot of right wing nut jobs making a lot of very disturbing noise over there. So I think in its own right that is really interesting. But、um, I, I think from an Irish perspective, what's really interesting is how much of this stuff finds its way into the Irish political narrative. Indeed, if it's not already there, so a very very strong UK. Focus, but Chris, starting off, 
Looking at the UK mortgage market situation, um, the Bank of England has increased rates from zero to four and a half percent since December 2021. Dramatic tightening of monetary policy by any stretch of the imagination. You feel that we're going to see the real impact of that hitting the personal sector over the coming months? Over the coming months and the coming years, actually, Jim, uh, for various reasons, which I'll go into. You rightly say that this uh, has a very UK-centric focus, but I think that it has a read across to Ireland, and you may or may not be able to share uh, if there are any similar uh, developments likely in Ireland, because the I think the trend that we've seen in the UK to an extent has been replicated in Ireland, in that when we were kids, Jim, we took up variable rate mortgages, and what people do these days is more typically take out fixed rate mortgages. And what that means is that the effect of interest rate changes takes longer to work through. Most simply, you take out a two-year fix um, at 0% interest rates a couple of years ago. And now that in the UK they're at 4.5%, uh, you won't feel that immediately in the way that you would have done if you'd been on a variable rate mortgage in the past. People with tracker mortgages in Ireland do feel it immediately, of course, and that, that's a separate issue. I've got some interesting data and thoughts on what it all means going forward. It's been called the mortgage bomb, not by an economist or an economic journalist. There's actually a political journalist called Hugo Rifkind. He's uh, uh, the son of an ex-Tory cabinet minister, actually, and he writes a very interesting column in the London Times. And for once, it was about financial and economic matters. And he quotes some numbers that he's dug up from various credible sources and the numbers themselves, I think, are fascinating. The average first-time London, the average first-time buyer mortgage for a London purchaser, and this is not the house price. This is the mortgage, the average mortgage that a first-time buyer is taking out in London at the moment, is three hundred and fifty-eight thousand pounds, which is enormous when you think that you know people are coming out with big deposits these days. Typically, the Office for National Statistics say that if you have a twenty-five percent uh, deposit, obviously a big if these days, an average London terraced house, modest London terraced house, which is what most families would aspire to in London, something with a small garden, now costs you £2,616 a month. That's getting on for what? Uh, €2,900 a month. That's up nearly £1,000 a month compared to a year ago. So that's ONS data. Hugo Rifkind in his column talks about looking for the best new mortgage deal. If you, if you are now remortgaging as a result of buying for the first time or your fixed rate mortgage has uh, rolled over, expired if you like, the best deal out there, according to the various websites that you can look at that um, screen for all the different banks and building societies, is that Compared to the rate that he's paying as a result of his fixed rate he took out a while ago, the best rate is three times his existing rate. Three times, Jim. That's, that would mean that his mortgage payments roughly, or nearly exactly, go up three times. If he renews with his existing mortgage supplier, which is not the provider of the best rate, his mortgage rate will go up between five and seven times. These numbers are extraordinary. So I've gone and had a look at uh, other people, what they're saying. And there's a very good outfit in the UK called the Resolution Foundation who crunched the numbers. 
in 2022. This shows you just how much the mortgage market has changed in the UK. And I'd be very interested to hear to the extent to which you think this has changed in Ireland. 96% of mortgages in 2022 last year were at fixed rates. Prior to the pandemic, less than half of mortgages were fixed. The majority of mortgages were still on variable rates. If you go back earlier in the um, in this century towards the 2000-2010 uh, the period, about 40% of mortgages were fixed. The fixes are, are the thing. Because of what we know about what how people have taken out fixes, they typically have taken out two-year fixes. The, the trend towards the end of the period of lower interest rates was for them to take out five-year fixes. Very few people took out 10-year fixes. Lucky them if they did. By the fourth quarter of 2026, most, if not all, of the existing fixed-rate mortgages will have rolled over. Therefore, most of the pain from higher mortgage rates has yet to be felt. And as you rightly said, in 18 months, we've gone from 0.1% base rates in the UK to 4.5% now. So the conclusion the Resolution Foundation comes to is that at least 50% of families with mortgages have yet to see their mortgage costs rise. And they've put it in terms of pounds. Okay, over the next year, over the next 12 months, there's going to be a £5 billion hit to household income over the next year. And in the year after that, there's another 7 billion to come. So surprise, surprise, and it's going to be the poorest and the youngest households that will bear a disproportionate amount of that pain. So I think Rifkind is right to call this a mortgage bomb. It's going to be a huge headwind for the UK economy, because these are sums of money that will make a huge difference to households' ability to buy other things. That's 12 billion pounds over the next uh, 24 months that will just go missing from the economy or at least from household income. So that will be £12 billion pounds that they're not spending in the shops, on cars or refurbishments or anything else that people choose to spend their money on. It's massive and it's a massive amount of pain. And I'm not sure that people have fully uh, taken all of this on board in terms of their forecasts for the UK economy. It's, it's un, uh, overwhelmingly a negative in my view. And as I say, this data is only just beginning to emerge. I know this granular data doesn't exist to quite the same extent in Ireland, Jim. But do you think a similar uh, set of developments is in store for the Irish household, for the Irish mortgage holder? Okay, as you say, Chris, we don't have the data to that level of granularity in Ireland. uh, But I commit here today to go and look a bit more detail to see what I can find out. But anecdotally, or you know, kind of off the top of my head, I would say that looking at the various components of the Irish mortgage market, okay, there's a lot of variable rate mortgages out there that are already being hit by higher interest rates. Tracker rate mortgages have gone up significantly because, as you know, tracker mortgages are tied to the European Central Bank's refinancing rate, and that has gone from zero to 3.75%. So we've seen the tracker mortgage holders, having enjoyed an absolute bonanza for a decade, uh, being very adversely affected since last July, and and it's going to get worse because the European Central Bank, I think, is undoubtedly going to increase rates by at least another half percent in this cycle. But then we have the fixed component. And as you said, 
um, in the context of the United Kingdom. And I think it was even worse here that the Irish mortgage market in the past was dominated by variable rate mortgages. Okay, and the only element of fixing we've seen over the last decade was, well, a little longer than a decade was when the tracker mortgage came along. So that was, in a sense, a kind of a fixed rate mortgage. Uh, but there was very little appetite for fixing a mortgage for five or 10 years. And I remember the attitude of people would have been, well, if, if the banks are trying to sell you a fixed rate mortgage, it means that it's in their interest. It's not in your interest. Uh, but of course, that was all wrong because the fixed rate mortgages being offered by the banks were effectively determined by where bond deals were at any specific point in time. Obviously, different institutions had different margins built in on top of that. But there was always a reluctance to go in for the fixed rate product. Another reason for that was because, number one, okay, there was, as I say, the lack of trust in financial institutions. But it was also the case that if you were moving house, um, you know, during the period of your fix, that it would cost you a lot of money to buy yourself out of that fixed rate product that the, the financial institutions would charge you because they had effectively hedged that mortgage for the length of time you fixed it. So there was a cost involved and that acted as a deterrent. Uh, but over the last two or three years, um, I think more and more mortgages have been fixed. I suspect most of those fixes would have been two to five years. So as those mortgages mature over the next couple of years, uh, you will see a hit to mortgage holders from that. Um, I know people who fixed for 10 years in the last 12 months at rates of around 2.7%. So people like that are in clover. But there is, like the UK, there is a segment of the house buying, uh, sorry, the mortgage holding population that will take a significant hit over the next couple of years. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, I mentioned in the last podcast about the transmission mechanism for interest rate changes. And the research globally shows that it takes up to 12 months for the full effect of higher interest rates to fully reflect themselves in the economy. And, and this is part of that transmission mechanism, you know, how it affects people coming off fixed rate uh, products and so on. And there's many other elements to it as well. But de very definitely um, here, as is the case in the United Kingdom, you will see a hit to consumer activity as a result of this. And you could see a significant number of people um, going into an arrears situation if they're faced with dramatically higher interest rates. Um, so it, uh, it, I don't believe it's a time, a mortgage bomb to the same extent as the United Kingdom, but, but it's still an issue. Um, but I, and I, I have no idea whether this is the case or not, Chris, but in the last podcast, I was also talking about the European Commission's spring economic forecast. And we mentioned, at least I mentioned what the European Commission was talking about for the euro area, for Ireland. Um, but I didn't mention the United Kingdom. But next year, the Europe, sorry, this year, the European Commission is forecasting that the UK economy will decline by 0.2% and expand by just 1% next year. And I, I suspect that part of that very negative prognosis has to do with what's happening on the interest rate front and the impact it has on the consumer side of the economy.
There's no relief as well from the interest rate outlook. You talked about European interest rates have yet to peak and that you expect at least another half a percent there. Uh, Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, has used the words wage price spiral to describe what's going on in the UK economy at the moment. And those are not the words of a central bank governor that thinks that interest rates are anywhere near peaking in the UK. That said, I know that there are people on the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England who don't want to keep putting interest rates up. They're in a small minority at the moment. And I suspect this mortgage bomb must be one of the factors that are worrying them, is that 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 research that you cited there that shows the traditional lags between moving interest rates and their effects finally being felt, the, the consequences of fixed rate mortgages, of fixed rate loans generally, must be to extend that lag. And that must be certainly one of the things that they're worried about. So this is something that we are going to watch very closely. And if there is any data on Ireland, Jim, I would be very interested to see it. But I get the sense from what you're saying is that you do not think that it is as big a problem in Ireland as it is the UK. Not not as big a problem, I suspect. But uh, let's see. I'll I'll dig in and see what I can come up with over the next few weeks. Uh, Chris, you mentioned um, about the owners of Vauxhall and Peugeot, um, the reaction to the tariff regime that's likely to be in place for the next stage of Brexit from the 1st of January next year. And I I think the context for this is that, you know, when Brexit happened, um, uh, immediately UK exporters to Europe were hit, but the UK did not impose tariffs because they hadn't agreed what sort of trading model was going to apply. Um, Recently, the UK government put out a draft for feedback called the Border Target Operating Model. And this is to try and get some feedback and input into what sort of tariff regime will apply on imports into Great Britain over, yeah, from the 1st of January next year. So I guess uh, that is the next stage of Brexit. Uh, but the likelihood is there will be significant targets, in, or sorry, tariffs even. Uh, Vauxhall Peugeot not happy? Yeah, it's the, the holding company or the, the main owner of these two car companies is, is an outfit called Stellantis. And Faisal Islam, who's a BBC Newsnight journalist, has got an exclusive this week about uh, what they're saying to the government. And it's pretty hard-hitting stuff. But it's all about trade. It's all about trading relationships, as you say, Jim. And it's all about tariffs and how the next phase of Brexit is going to go. And in this particular instance, it's about something that's very topical. I think everybody is thinking about this one way or another. If you haven't bought an electric car yet, I suspect many of our listeners are are thinking about it at some point in the future. And this particular aspect of the UK's trading relationship with Europe is about electric car exports from the UK to the EU. Now, a lot of these trading rules are mind-numbingly complex and no sentient adult should ever really concern themselves with these trading rules. But unfortunately, because of Brexit, we have to mention them. And one of the aspects of this is something called rules of origin requirements. In order not to attract tariffs going from exports Uh, from the UK to the European Union. The European Union insists, and this was written into the agreement negotiated by Michel Barnier and David Frost, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement and the Brexit Agreement overall, is that uh, 
if a certain proportion of, say, a car or a battery is, is made within the EU, then it won't attract a tariff. It doesn't have to be made 100% in the EU because many components for many manufactured goods, not least cars, not least car batteries, are made all over the world. So the UK manufactures some components, produces some bits and pieces itself, imports others from elsewhere. And what was written in was that for a car battery, at least 45% of the battery's components must be made in the UK. Otherwise, they will attract a 10% EU tariff. And it's all very complicated. Rules of origin is not something, as I say, that normal people should ever discuss in polite company. But this is what's going on. And what Stellantis have said this week is that if the cost of electric vehicle manufacturing becomes uncompetitive, operations will close. Hard-hitting stuff. Manufacturers will relocate operations outside of the UK. Faisal Islam himself has said quite explicitly, rules of origin requirements were put in by Barnier into that agreement with David Frost. They weren't put in by accident. They were designed to help reshore manufacturing activity to the single market. So it just goes you to show how hopeless David Frost was as a negotiator and how skillful Michel Barnier in particular, the EU in general, was. We've known that from a whole host of different aspects of the Brexit negotiations. The EU were experts and the UK were amateurs. And I say that no sentient adult, apart from proper trade negotiators, should ever, con- should ever, ever discuss rules of origin. Um, but the UK, I think, no longer seems to, to have any sentient adults generally and certainly no proper trade negotiators. The last thing Frosty, Lord Frost, ever was, was a trade negotiator. So this, is, this would be catastrophic for the UK if it lost its car manufacturing industry. But do you remember a, um, one of the Brexit wingnuts was a, a professor of economics called Patrick Minford? Do you remember that name, Jim? I do indeed. He was an advisor to Margaret Thatcher. That's right. He's still around. And one of the yeah. things he famously said during the Brexit negotiations, and you might think this a little bizarre, is that he said that he thought Brexit would mean the end of car manufacturing in the UK. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. 
for once, a forecast looks as if it might be about to come right. Um, I have my doubts. I think that um, maybe Stellantis is over-egging this slightly because one of the things that strikes me about a 10% tariff is that, it, say, for example, the exchange rate moved by that amount, which it can do, I don't think that would necessarily destroy the um, UK manufacturing industry. So maybe there is an element of crying wolf, but, but I certainly think it's something to be taken very seriously. And I know that the UK government is taking this very, very seriously. One thing that is, I think would encourage the UK government to think that this might not happen in quite the way that Stellantis fears is that the mood music between London and Brussels is now much better than it was thanks to the Windsor Agreement, which you and I have discussed at length. And I know the business secretary, Kemi Badenoch, uh, is, I think, uh, as we're speaking, meeting with representatives from Stellantis, saying, uh, trying to reassure them that she's going to do all that she can to stop this from happening. And because of that better mood music, the EU, Brussels, might be in a mood to uh, delay this 10% tariff um, for a while longer. I think that might well be uh, one of the potential outcomes. But um, there there are some trade experts in the UK. I I, I don't think there are literally none. I don't think there are many in the UK government. But there's a, a guy who regularly appears on Twitter. I thoroughly recommend anybody that is interested in this stuff to, to give him a follow. A chap called David Hennick. He's a real proper trade expert. And he says, quite rightly, he said it today, actually, rules of origin shouldn't be interesting. If they are interesting, we are doing something wrong. And boy, are we doing something wrong. Um, so I, I, this is not... Um, necessarily going to be catastrophic, but it's one more uh, nail in the coffin of those who argued that Brexit was going to, to produce sunny uplands. The sunny uplands have receded to the, the dark side of the moon, as far as I can see. And uh, on putting all of that together, I think it was interesting this week that Nigel Farage, um, on Newsnight, the BBC's flagship news programme, um, and this is a quote, said, Brexit has failed. One of the things about uh, the quality it might, the, the quality of trade negotiations might be poor in the UK, but journalism isn't that much better these days because the journalists concerned should have asked him the obvious follow-up question because Nigel Farage once said, famously said a long time ago, that if Brexit fails, I will leave the country. So I really wish that this interviewer had asked Farage, are you now going to leave? The final thing I'd say about this is that when... Number 10, Downing Street, the Prime Minister's office, was asked about Farage's comments, Brexit has failed. They said, no, 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 of course it hasn't. So when asked what are the successes of Brexit, this uh, Prime Ministerial spokesperson said, without any irony at all, Brexit has been good for British farmers. Now, if you know anything about farming, Jim, and I know you do, British farmers are up in arms over what Brexit has done to them. So I'll just leave that there. Um, is just an ongoing debacle and it justifies all logic. I've always believed, Chris, that in recent years you have way too much time on your hands and you get to look at stuff and read stuff that most of us would never even contemplate. But you have been watching closely the National Conservatism Conference that's taking place in the UK this week. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's it's a really weird thing. Um, my reaction to it is I don't know whether to laugh or cry or just be terrified uh, because uh, some of the stuff that's come out could really occupy several podcasts, to be honest. 
It's sponsored. It's sponsored by some strange. Um, I won't use the word sinister. What? What? How would I describe it? People that I, I don't understand where they're coming from, what their background really is. Uh, but the participant list is a long one. It's been held over multiple days this week. Some of these names will be familiar to our listeners. Some of them will not. Uh, but I'll just run through them quickly. Douglas Murray, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Melanie Phillips, Lord David Frost, Tim Stanley, Matthew Goodwin, Eric Kaufman, Nigel Bigger, David Starkey, Michael Gove, Daniel Hannon, Kevin Roberts, Yaron Hazoni, and Sir Richard Dearlove. And that's not all of them. That's the ones that have attracted my attention. As I say, I won't go through all of the things that, that all of these different people have said. The themes of this conference, I've made some notes that, as I've listened to the various speakers. It's all available online. Christianity, family, wokeism, the nation state, nationalism. Nationalism is purity, the flag, freedom. And you, you probably get a sense of where these conservatives are actually coming from. There's a guy called Kevin Roberts that I mentioned in that list, and he heads up something called the Heritage Foundation in the United States, which seems to have been a or one of the sponsors, organisers of this conference. And some of the things he said, well, let me just give you a quote, Jim, and ask you what you think of this. So uh, Kevin Roberts said, the EU embodies the cultural chauvinism, spiritual decadence, strategic incompetence and tyrannical ambition that has buried the continent into chaos for millennia. What do you think of that? That's absolutely bizarre. I mean, to, to suggest that the we've had millennia of chaos on the continent, uh, I don't know, it's, 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 it's very difficult to know how to respond to that stuff, Chris. Let me go on. An MP called Danny Kruger, I don't think I put him in that list, actually. Um, he elaborated on one of those themes that I mentioned just now on the family. And he said, and this is a quote, marriage is not all about you. It's not just a private arrangement. What on earth does he, do you make of that? I mean, I, I don't even know where to begin to, to, to give you my reaction to that. But at a conference about conservatism and, and the way in which they're going on about the family and the way in which the state is, should be interested in the family strikes me at best as a gross intrusion and at worst as something deeply, deeply sinister. Um, we had something, somebody called Gwythian Prins, and he, this chap is a former advisor to the UK Chiefs of Defence staff. Now, one of the themes that he elaborated on was about empire. And I'll give you a quote, Jim. Now, as an Irishman, I want you to take a deep breath. You ready for this? Many people remember the British legacy with fondness, while the British people no longer believe in themselves. I've just dropped my pen in shock, Chris. Uh, what, what a load of bullshit. Um, OK. Are there so, many people so, attending this? That I don't know. I don't know how many people attended. I've seen the online speakers, but I haven't seen much by way of audience numbers. OK, I'll give you another quote from somebody called Michael Anton. Quote, I can't stress how much Brexit buoyed us Trump supporters in the summer of 2016 and how much all of us Anglophiles were enthused to see Britain standing up for herself against the globalist Borg. I mean, really, Jim, really. Now, this raises, I think, quite difficult, tricky and more sinister issues because the language that was used 
that word globalist, um, of course, is a classic, in my opinion, dog whistle. People like this often use globalist or globalism and cultural Marxism labels to attack their opponents. Now, if you know anything about dog whistles, um, and by dog whistle, in case anybody's not quite sure what I mean, it's a, it's a coded reference to something. It's a silent reference to something quite nasty. And uh, one of the things, in, in an article about The Guardian this week, they asked the question, they didn't state it unequivocally, they asked the question, is constant use of the word globalist and cultural Marxism classic anti-Semitic dog whistles? And this article concluded that in many cases they actually are, that what people often mean by these things is that they are conspiracy theorists, they, they believe that the world is run by a, a global Jewish conspiracy, cultural Marxism is a reference to um, an awful lot of the original Marxists who were Jewish actually, and so there is a worry and nobody is accusing anybody of being anti-Semitic here. I've got to make sure that um, I'm not going to be sued for, for making accusations about people, particular individuals. But if you are going to use language like that, I think you need to be a lot more careful than these people were. And uh, it's certainly the case that some people throughout history, not necessarily at this conference, when they use language like this, are being anti-Semitic. And, of course, the, if that accusation is made against people in this conference, which I think it, in a tangential way has been, it's provoked a furious reaction, saying, of course, um, some of my best friends are Jewish. Indeed, some of the people at the conference, indeed, one of the organisers of the conference is Jewish. So how could we possibly be anti-Semitic? Well, um, it does happen, doesn't it? Um, to, so they, they go on about wokeism, the, me, the media... This is a quote from that Michael Anton fellow. This is, this is the last but one quote I'll read out to you, Jim. Wokeism, the media, the administrative state, the university, the, the NGO, the international busybody, all of that complex will potentially lead to the West consuming itself. So these people are quite apocalyptic that if we don't follow their agenda of family, nation-state, empire, nationalism, the flag, freedom that we are all doomed. Now, as I say, I could go on and on about this, and, and I, I must say, the more I read about it, the more I listen to it, the more I think about it, the more I think I shouldn't, because I'm polluting my mind with all of this absolute garbage. Um, but I do find it quite sinister. Um, uh, it, it strikes me as being something that um, 1930s neo-fascist rallies in the United Kingdom, uh, the black shirts, the Mosleyites would have been quite comfortable with, dare I say. Um, but so let, on that note, I'll end, actually, because, as I say, I could talk about this all day in terms of asking questions and posing worries about all of this stuff. But there was a speaker called Douglas Murray, who has a lot of previous in this regard. You can look him up on the Internet and find out all sorts of controversies associated. I was following him during the week, yeah. OK, here's the quote. There was nothing wrong with nationalism in Britain. It's just that there was something wrong with nationalism in Germany. I don't see why no one should be allowed to love their country because the Germans mucked up twice in a century. So we think that two world wars, the Holocaust, was just Germany mucking up. I mean, Jim, I mean, does that even come close to describing the horrific experiences of those two world wars, particularly the Holocaust? We describe it as mucking up. 
I mean, that trivialises the Holocaust, in my view, in the most appalling use of language that I could possibly imagine. So I'm going to leave it there. Um, If you wish to offer any of your thoughts on that, please feel free. But I think that, that the listeners should be aware of this stuff going on in the UK. It's right wing... Uh, ultra-right-wing, batshit crazy, wing-nut stuff finally crossing the Atlantic. And the reason why I say finally crossing the Atlantic is that the, the horror that I have for this stuff, I wouldn't really pay it as much attention as I have, is that MPs and government ministers like Michael Gove were present at this uh, thing. There were other things said. Jacob, Jacob Rees-Mogg's speech was extraordinary in the context of gerrymandering in the UK. As I say, I, w- I won't go on any more about it. But um, if it's crossed the Atlantic to the UK, Jim, I, I fear that it's heading your way too. OK, Chris, um, all I can say is we, we have a few of those here in Ireland, but not that many at the moment. But God help us if it spreads. Um, I think we should just leave it there at that. Leave it hang out there. Let people observe what these nutcases are actually saying and believing and hope to Christ that sane people don't believe it. Talk to you, Chris. I'm into that, Jim. Cheers. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.